You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxham. Today on Speaking of the Arts, we get our own private tour of the new master's exhibit at the Sega Browdis Gallery called Mid-Century Abstraction, the American Vanguard. And that's with gallery director Hannah Reeves. But first, we go behind the scenes of a new comedy that opens tonight at Talking Horse Theatre with director Russ Scott and actors Dana Bucky and and Monica Palmer. The play is called Clever Little Lies, and I am delighted to welcome to the Speaking of the Art guest seats, Russ, Dana, and Monica. Welcome. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> this is radio, so you can't see how gorgeous Diane is. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like uh, she stepped right out of a fashion magazine. She's always gorgeous. All of my guests are gorgeous <laughs> as well. That's very sweet. It's not true at all. But <laughs> Just accept it, Monica. Accept it. We like it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the last play of the 2018 season at Talking Horse, which it turns out was the last season put together by Talking Horse founder, Ed Hansen, who is now navigating retirement, preparing for his <laughs> Sinatra Supper Night Club mm-hmm. at Talking Horse on January the 19th. And he is probably not wearing any pants. Probably not. Nope. I, I've not actually if, seen him this morning. Betting, he was. He but, was okay. but, at this point, though. Uh, by this point, maybe not anymore. Now, I'm yeah. assuming he'll be wearing pants for the Sinatra <laughs> Supper Club. But Ed, if you mm. are listening, please don't feel like you have to wear pants for our sake. <laughs> yes, no, do feel like <laughs> Please, please do. <laughs> but back to the play. Russ, tell us what Clever Little Lies is about. Uh, it's a little bit about a family who the son is having, playing tennis with his dad and finds out that the son is having an affair. And so the father goes home and the wife, the lovely mother, Alice, played by Monica Palmer, <laughs> extracts, that's the exact <laughs> word he uses, extracts the fact that he is having a problem, specifically a man problem. <laughs> and it is Alice's job to want to fix her son's marriage. And we get to hear all that lovely little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Monica, you are... Alice, Alice, the mother. It's a perfect perfect role for me. It is a perfect role for me. You know, my daughter, my six-year-old, opened up my script, and she looked at all of the highlighting, and she was like, wow, that's a lot of talking. She talks like you, Mommy. And I'm like, yep, that's that's, that's right. (laughs) So I keep playing these women who talk as much as I do, so that's (laughs) super fun. But no, Alice is a wonderful character, and I I, I don't think, you know, Russ uses the word extracts, and, you know, JJ, uh, who plays Bill Sr., the the script says the word extracts, but she's just really, in tuned to the people in her life she can pick up these things I wish I had her superpowers because you know it's like a lie detector (laughs) well I mean she definitely she definitely does extract the information it is not given to her (laughs) no no it is by process of saying nothing but you have to sense it first and that's the thing that I don't have is that like that kind of ESP she just knows she knows something's off just from a tone or a gesture (laughs) she can tell something is wrong now I have to say I got to see the play last night it opens tonight but Monica very kindly asked me to be her plus one and go to the dress rehearsal (laughs) Mm -hmm. which felt like I I mean I was an audience of one yes you were pretty much which was very exciting to have a whole play Just for me. It was just for you. 
So it was really fun to see that. And so the part that we're talking about when Bill Senior, the father, goes home having found out about his son's indiscretions, shall we say. I mean, it's, we find that pretty ill, and it's not, yeah. it's not a spoiler alert to say that Billy Jr. is having an affair. Yeah. And so he says to his father, whatever you do, do not tell my mother, knowing full well that she will interfere. Right. And so Bill promises, his dad promises, he will not say anything to his mother. But in just sitting in his chair at home and saying nothing, <laughs> Alice works out that you're very quiet, something's wrong, tell me what's wrong. If, if you can't, and he says, I can't, I, there's nothing wrong, I can't tell you anything. And he, she says, okay, well, if I, if I get it right, just don't say anything. <laughs> right. So then you're not breaking your, so, your promise of saying anything. She goes through all the options. Billy has cancer. Billy goes through everything. He's lost his job. Right. And then finally she happens upon. It's his marriage. And, and you know, it becomes obvious that that she's right. hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the play progresses from there. So I was kind of, having seen the show, I thought it was funny that the, it was called Clever Little Lies because mm. A, they're not very clever. They're not very no, clever not at all. At all. <laughs> B, no. it's more about hiding the truth than right. telling lies. That's right. Um, and when the lie is revealed, it is not little. Right. <laughs> so. No, it's not. You know, it, that's why I've said before, you know, this, it's called Clever Little Lies, but I think it's so much more about the truth mm-hmm. and right. the power of truth and what we share to, you know, what we you know, hide in what we reveal, you know, that in order to save the relationships in our lives or to protect the people in our lives, you know, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, I saw it described as kind of a very 1970s style, Neil mm. Simon-esque sitcom. Yeah. And it is, it's lots of cheap laughs and sure. I laughed at all the cheap laughs. <laughs> but, then, but then there is this really surprising twist in it which you know we won't reveal because you do have to go and see it but um it was uh it was very surprising and 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 once the twist has been revealed you still think that it's kind of a joke until there's a certain point in the dialogue which we were talking about last night when was it for you Mm. when you realize oh Oh. this is not a joke (laughs) um and that's really interesting where you i think probably audience members will have a different point in that dialogue where they decide that um actually Mm. what they're listening to is somebody telling the truth for the first time sure yeah (laughs) so i thought that was great so um um, i have been enjoying your social media campaigns (laughs) monica you direct excellent social media campaigns (laughs) and i like your uh, you sit all sit in a room and then each of you takes it in turn to tell two truths and a lie. Yeah, I thought that would be a really fun game to play with a show called Clever Little Lies because you know exactly. it's a great icebreaker game. You know, we're all family. You know, Dana is my daughter-in-law, Zach is my <laughs> son, and JJ is my husband in the show. So I thought, you know, this is a, this is a super fun game for us to play. Are so, you good yeah. liars? Uh, you know. I Dana? Think, I think Dana and I are. Yeah. I think women are usually, well, that's a really sexist thing to say. But <laughs> in our case, the women of our group were much better liars than the boys, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree so with that. So I thought that we would play that game because I want to see if I'm a, te- I'm a terrible liar. Okay. Going against <laughs> your previous comment, I am not a good liar. All right. So, okay, so here goes. Two truths and a lie. All right, let's, let's hear it. Let's see if you can get it. <clears throat> Number one. Mm-hmm. I ended up working for the BBC because I met a producer at the Hobo Convention in Brit, Iowa. Is that Hoboken or Hobo, hobo Convention? Convention. <laughs> Got it, okay. Where all the hobos meet once a year. Got it, all right. Okay, num- <laughs> number two. When I lived in Hong Kong, I was an extra in a Jackie Chan movie, though sadly the clip got cut, mm. so my lady shopping for perfume at the Lane Crawford <laughs> department store was never actually seen. Oh, okay. Hmm. Or number three. 
I once got a ride from Piers Morgan, who you know as a judge on America's Got Talent, yes. who took me to Ladies' Day at Ascot. Wow. Those are all believable. <laughs> Every single one of them. I'm, I'm like picturing Diana in each one of these scenarios. They're all equally believable. Okay, um, I'm going to have to take a So we have to figure out which you. one is the lie. Mm-hmm. Dana, what do you think? Dana. I am going to go with number three. Here's number Morgan. Three. Here's more. I see. I can say. I want that one to be true. <laughs> <laughs> see, I really want the Jackie Chan thing to be true. I really, really do. <laughs> I do. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with the uh, hobo convention. Hobo convention yeah. in British Iowa. Okay. Monica, down to you. Oh, okay. You guys have picked different ones then. So the yeah. remaining one is the uh, the Jackie Chan. Is that all right? I guess I'll take that one. But so I really want Monica that to be thinks true. Jackie Chan is is a lie. Damon thinks Piers Morgan is mm-hmm. a lie, and Russ thinks the hobo convention <laughs> is a lie. Yeah. The one that is a lie is Jackie Chan. Oh, oh I wanted it to be true. <laughs> Sadly, no. Well, I see, was you know the reason it can't be that. true is Diana would never end up on anyone's cut room floor. That oh, would, yeah. It just wouldn't exactly. happen. That's, that's why it's okay. not. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway. That. Isn't that a fun game? It's a great Everyone game. play that at work today with your coworkers or play it at Christmas with your families. You'll, you'll have so much fun with that. You can even do it over texting, too. It's super fun. Yeah. Because then you can't read all the, you know, physical the cues. On yeah. their face. Mm-hmm. So my, my lying yeah. credentials have just gone up a little bit. Then. Yes. I'm a better liar than I Absolutely. thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, Dana, you are, you play Jane, yes. the daughter-in-law. Tell us all about Jane. Um, man, I could talk about Jane for a really long time. Um, I'll not go too long into my diatribe about how I feel like she's a character that's built solely for the uh, progression of a man. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is. Uh, but, I mean, she she is trying very hard to convince herself. And you were talking about the, you know, the, the things we say to hold our relationships together. I feel Mm -hmm. like the person she's lying to most in this is herself. Mm -hmm. You know, she just keeps talking about how happy she is and how great this is. And it's not great. (laughs) It's not great. So the person she is lying to most in this whole show is, is really herself. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, she just had a baby and, and there's lots of hormones and feelings and what she thinks this life should be. And it's it's not at all. <laughs> yeah, that that is true. I, I, I just wanted to kind of keep shaking it through the play and say, wake up, Jane, and smell the cheesecake. <laughs> right. And I, I feel the same way. And uh, it's really, as an actor, I feel like the, the challenge in all of that is to where can I find the truth? You know, like you have to find the truth in it somehow, even though I'm like, I am nothing like her. Yeah, see, that's um, the thing. Dana has a real hard challenge. I play these overbearing mothers, so it's not real real <laughs> far of a stretch for me. I'm like, just to hop over and I'm someone else. But to play someone who is so opposite of who you are as yeah. a human is, Dana's done a really great job so with So how do you do that? How do you get into character? What's your preparation as you're either in the green room beforehand or in the days leading up to Do you walk around and imagine that you are Jane and how you would respond to situations? Not, not all the time. Um, you know, I'm not one of those people who gets into, like, you know, a sort of method and stays mm-hmm. that way all the time. I, but I just, you find the little bits of truth mm-hmm. in it. And so, you know, she does love her child. She does love her husband, even though she cannot understand him right now. And she doesn't understand why he's so angry. And so I think she's just always trying to balance, balance, balance. He's angry. She's happy. Mm. She's like, if I can be happy enough or seem happy enough, maybe finally he'll be happy, too. Oh, wow. Mm. And and so she's always just trying to balance him, whatever he's doing. So a lot of it is me playing off of Zach. 
mm-hmm. who plays my husband. And so, like, the angry, the more angry he becomes, Jane tries to be happier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the more short he is, the faster he fires back, the more I slow it down. Try, you know, just trying to pull him back all the time so that they can find some sort of middle ground because they're at very two different ends of the spectrum right now. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how I, I have to play it because she's not a terribly well-written character. No. She really isn't. <laughs> no. And so, like I said, you just have to you find your strategies and you find the bits of truth and play it like you can. Because he is so volatile and mm-hmm. so mean. And, and any normal person would say, you know, what the hell is the matter with you? We need to talk <laughs> about this. parents are delightful. <laughs> Like how did they, they really are? Up? We're delightful. <laughs> they really are. But yeah, no, he is. And I also, I, Jane, we kind of the both of us uh, <laughs> believe that he wasn't always like that. You know, mm-hmm. it's different. Mm-hmm. He's this is a recent He's development, changed, right? And and she can't figure out. You know, is it her? Is it the baby? Is it, you know, what maybe he's just, maybe it is work. Maybe he really is just stressed. You know, like she's lying to herself, like I said, about, you know, just trying to find the reasons. And if she can just write him out, if she can just keep making things happy for long enough, maybe he will get his stuff together and be the man she married. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. No, No, probably not. She should just, you know, kind of end the play with a Cut divorce. Cut run, baby. Cut run. <laughs> I just want to shout, get out. Uh, I do the same thing. I'm like, why? Yeah, no, I am nothing like Jane. So, hmm. yay, growth is an actor, but she frustrates the crap out of me. Yeah. Now, besides the two of you, we have J.J. Musgrove, who is hmm. playing Bill Senior, the father, mm-hmm. and your husband, Alice, slash Monica. Um, and he's also is a joy to watch as well. I love Absolutely. watching J.J. Yeah, you know, you were talking earlier that it kind of, it, it's that... Um, that kind of situational comedy thing, you know. And I don't think I've seen a better actor at this style. You know, just the laughs, just he, they're so natural. They come so natural because he just plays them all. But it's timing. You mm-hmm. know, it's all about timing. And, and JJ has impeccable timing. So he really he plays that. It's it's like a couple of different scripts in one though. Because after the transition, he he shows you. You know, you can he can be an amazing actor straight. I just period. Dramatic. Period. Right. You know, just like you know, he's just an amazing actor. He can he can go all the way this way, all the way this way. It's it's so much fun to work with somebody that good, but it it sucks too because it makes you work so much harder <laughs> <laughs> because you have to get like up to that level, and it's like oh oh okay all right I'll try. <laughs> and then the fourth person in the play is Zach Allen, who yes. plays Billy Junior. Now Zach, he this is his second year of acting. Yes. He's playing against three actors <laughs> who have been their stalwarts Bless of the heart. Columbia oh, stage well, scene. We're stalwarts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stalwarts <laughs> and he does an amazing job too yeah this is only Zach's third play and I found that out and I was like oh my gosh he's come a long way since auditions mm-hmm. I mean a yeah, long way and it helped you know, normally he has a bigger hair yeah and very uh, very curly oh. um, yes very poof poof he lost kind about of four inches when he cut his hair <laughs> yeah. no, I'm exactly. not even kidding he no. lost four inches because you know he's super tall already but I was like son and my neck is all the way back you know I'm looking up at my son <laughs> but you know his hair was very so he's really committed to this part and like become transitioned into Billy so, he bought a yeah. suit specifically for the show it's a nice <laughs> suit it's a very nice yeah. suit and he bought yeah. it just, he's very proud of that suit he is so he's so <laughs> proud of that suit Ask him about the suit. If you come to see the show, stay after, talk to Zach, tell him he looks amazing in his suit yeah. and my husband's shoes. <laughs> 
And last month he was wearing a pair of very fetching turquoise socks. I wondered whose socks were they. I don't know where those came from. <laughs> I think they're his. They're, they are his. They he, are his. He, is also, he is proud of his suit. He is also very proud of his uh, eclectic sock socks. collection. So um. he said it's going to be different socks every night. Oh, okay. So it's what he told me. Yeah. So <laughs> there'll be different uh, bizarre socks every night. So you could come and see the show multiple times and it would be different every time you saw it. <laughs> For more than one reason, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> so now Ross is the director of the show. I mean, it is a, com- a comedy, and comedy is all about timing. And you are the one that is ho- you are the one that is holding the magic stage wand over all of these people who are <laughs> being funny. How challenging is it directing a comedy over a straight drama? What I like to do is give the actors a lot of leeway to just play, and we don't nail anything down until we're like two and a half weeks out, and that's what they did. Um, They just play. They came up with a lot of stuff on their own, and it's just repetition, repetition, repetition. And if something's not working, we just try to fix it. And I I put it all on them because they did a lot of hard work for this. I didn't do much. I just watched. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to stay awake, you know. Yeah, trying to stay awake. I mean, I think I think Monica and JJ and Diana, you've you've all been you've all done so many shows that I think you know you do have good timing. But it but it, it. well, a lot of the laughs are very much based on that timing mm-hmm. um, last night. And if you go too fast, you know, you skip the laugh. And mm-hmm. so it did uh, It did strike me that you'd, you'd done a really great job last night on, on where the laughs were and how it was timed. And um, Well, that was with one person in the audience. Who knows what will happen tonight? If, there, we, if we get more than one laugh at a time, I don't know if we're going to be able to handle it. <laughs> well, that, that is funny, too. I just fall apart. You know, when you're in an audience, you, there is kind of a group think and, and when, where you laugh. Mm. But when you're the only person in the audience, I kept thinking, am I laughing? Nothing appropriately or inappropriately. <laughs> well, and one of the things that I always think is interesting, you know, having done theater for several years, is there's the laughs you know you're going to get, yeah. probably, mm-hmm. and then there are the laughs that come out of nowhere, where like, someone oh, that is funny. someone found never... humor in something <laughs> right. that maybe no one else did, or else they weren't really vocal about enjoying, and then you get this bizarre laugh that that you didn't previously kind of time for and you're like mm. and I gotta wait a second um, but I always kind of love that I love when audiences find humor in places you kind of stop seeing it because you've done it so many times sure. and, and you're not used to people laughing there and then they find it and that one line for some reason just tickles them um, yeah and- I've, I've done that I've been the one person that laughs and then I think oh, was that politically incorrect should I have laughed? is that Welcome wrong to, to my laugh? life every show every show I'm like the only one laughing <laughs> so I kind of want to come and see it again and see if I was laughing in the right places do it. <laughs> so each of the four characters, they have some very appealing qualities. You know, mm-hmm. Alice is very loving. Oh, Jane is very loving too, very mm-hmm. patient. You know, Billy is very well dressed. <laughs> <laughs> This is why I love her. That is the best way to describe it. Well done. That's wonderful. And Bill Senior, just, you know, he loves his family. He wants Mm. to be, you know, wants to do the best by people. But they all each have some unappealing qualities, too. We've kind of talked about Jane's maybe over. Her patience is both an appealing and an unappealing quality. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Tell us what you dislike about Alice, Monica. You know, I dislike that she doesn't let people find their own way. You know, I, I think that, you know, with especially with my kids, I'm much more, you know, like they're still little though, but you know, I, I like to let them 
them solve their own problems so that they end up being well-rounded humans that can do that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that she she just tries to do a little too much, and I think she'd be happier if, you know, she just focused on her own her own journey and, <laughs> and stopped trying to control other people. So, yeah. And she has a pretty, it seems like she has a very busy life. She owns she a bookstore, yeah. and she goes to exercise class. Yeah, and well, I think that's a newer thing for her. You know, she had just joined her son's gym. She's starting to do Tai Chi. She's she's trying to, you know, connect with her, you know, physical. She's been very intellectual for a long time. You know, she's she's a reader. She reads everything. And so <laughs> that's why I think she thinks that she's such an expert on the human plight and, and <laughs> thinks that she can solve everyone's problems is because, you know, she's, oh, I read that book. Here, let me tell you how it ends. You know, <laughs> right. she's that kind of person. So, yeah, yeah. That's funny when she's inviting Jane and Billy over for a uh, for cheesecake mm. and and Jane says you know well I have a book club and Alice says oh you know what are you reading and you just hear Alice is only on the phone so you only hear Alice's response and she's like oh yeah yeah, yeah I've read that I've read that it's it's not very good, she says. <laughs> she says another word. Oh, that's the other thing we should probably mention is there's some strong language there is. in this show. So if that's something that rubs you the wrong way, this may not be the show for you. But if you love people who drop the F-bomb on a regular, this is the show for you. <laughs> <laughs> and Monica, you mentioned last night that maybe this had altered the conversations you were having at home. <laughs> so I'm like a sailor at home and my kids are like, Mommy, <laughs> that's a stage word. Because <laughs> there are words we say when we're in a show. But there, we don't usually say those words when we're at home. That's so. a great way of categorizing it. Yeah, this is a stage a word. That's a stage word. That's a show <laughs> word, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite lines in the play? Oh, so many. Um, you know, one of the most touching lines that grabbed me from the first read of this script was, you are so young, just wait until you see what time does. And I just, I'm just like, that resonates with 23 me. 23 is so not much. an age. It's not an age. It's just, <laughs> it's not a person. It's just an age. Oh, that's, you know, that's what, Yeah, that's another great line. That's not my line, but I like that one. But yeah, it, I, I think there's a lot, you know, uh, looking at this, this show and this script from where I am in my own journey, you know, it's just like, Wow, you know, I, I wish I had known some of these things when when I was still young and naive. But you know, it, th- this is part of that. This is when you're supposed to learn it. This is the joy of life. <laughs> but yes. you know, and it's really hard to look at young people who are struggling and and think, oh, you'll get it. Just 20 more years, you'll, you'll understand. <laughs> Just you'll get it. <laughs> Jane and uh, Jane, Dana. Yeah. <laughs> Dana. <laughs> I'm conflating you already. I do the same thing. <laughs> um. Oh. My favorite, well, I can't say my favorite line in the show because it's not appropriate for the radio. <laughs> um, but it's one of the few times that, that Jane loses mm. her patience, that mm-hmm. she truly lets her frustration show, and it is one of my favorite lines. And the other time she doesn't say anything. It's more of an action that people just need to see. Um, <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I do, God, JJ's got such great lines. He has yeah. got great He's lines. He's got all the best lines. JJ That's why we does have him. all the yep. best mm-hmm. lines. Um, but no, I love the, I also love the rant about um, the pursuit of happiness. Yes. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. how it has just ruined everything because people think they're entitled, entitled mm-hmm. to happiness. And he's like, you, you live and you find the happy in that. And, and I just, I love that whole, that whole piece. I love, uh, GG got all the good lines. <laughs> yeah, you find the happy in whatever hand you're dealt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. I thought was great advice. I liked when Alice says, nothing's private, we're your parents. Exactly. <laughs> yes, no, sorry. <laughs> you see, that's the overreach I was talking about earlier. <laughs> so you mentioned, I mean, you, when your daughter saw it, you have a lot of lines mm. to remember. How... What is your technique for remembering that much dialogue? 
Um, well, I do repetition, so I'll record it into. It's called Line Learner. It's mm. an app on your phone, and so you know you record it in there, and then um, first you can just listen to it as a recording, and then a- after you get more confident, you can mute the the lines that you're supposed to say, and so then you fill it in in the blank. Brilliant. And then it plays it back so you can check it. So and then you can take out the checking after you feel confident when you just need to glib through your lines and stuff. So that's that's my method because you know I'm the girl that you know you listen to the song three times in the car on the radio and you have it memorized. So oh. that's that's how I memorize stuff. Everybody does it differently though. I think like Zach was talking about he studies his lines, you know, and, and I I mean Dana, what what is I your... recorded the cast. Yeah. Um I put my phone like on the middle of the table and we read through the scene and I recorded everyone doing their part. And then I do the same thing. I listen to it over and over and over again and preempt my own lines to make sure I've got them. But I get used to listening that way to the other actors versus just thinking what's my line. Right. I just like hearing my own voice and only <laughs> only my voice. Well, we are sadly out of time, um, but um, somebody give us a reminder on dates, times, and tickets. And they're all looking at me. Uh, We open tonight, the 7th of December. We run through this Sunday, the 9th, and then next week, Thursday through Mm -hmm. Sunday, uh, so 13th through the 16th. Uh, Fridays and Saturdays are at 7.30, and Sunday matinees are at 2, and tickets are $15 for adults, 13 for seniors and students. Okay, and you can buy those online at talkinghorseproductions.org, or you can give them a call on 573-607-1740. And we should probably also mention, at this point in time, flex passes are now Mm. available for the 2019 season. Um, the first show of which, Monica, you are directing. I am. It's called White People by J.T. Rogers. Uh, he's a Columbia guy. He went to Hickman. No, did he go to Hickman or Rock? One Rockbridge. Of, one of the schools. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he also directed Oslo, which won all of the Tony acclaim it last did. year. And so uh, it's funny, the rep is actually, the St. Louis rep is going to be doing Oslo at the same time we're doing White People. So there's a chance J.T. might come oh, to town. That would be fantastic. Well, I think his family still live here, don't yeah. they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did see Oslo at the Lincoln Center. Um, last was it summer. Good? It was very good. It's very long and you have to pay attention. Sorry, <laughs> we've already slipped into our coffee conversation for after the show. I'm sorry, guys. Sorry. So, thank you so right. much to Russ Scott, Dana Bucky, and Monica Palmer. Mm. Their production of Clever Little Lies opens tonight at Talking Horse Theatre and will run for two weekends. As always, ticket sales go fast for this 70-seat theatre, so do not delay. I have seen it and it is very funny. So, Get your ticket. It's a good pre-Christmas laugh. Yay, a Diana Moxon endorsement. Yes, we win. <laughs> Speaking of the Arts Effect. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after the break, we'll be back with the Sega Browdis Gallery Director, Hannah Reeves, to talk about their new Masters exhibit, which also opens tonight. Don't go away. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And to my next guest, Sega Browdis Gallery Director, Hannah Reeves, who is overseeing the new master's exhibit called Mid-Century Abstraction, the American Vanguard, which has its grand opening tonight. Hello, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Hannah. (laughs) Good to be here. So it is a pleasure listening to you speak about art. You have a wonderful knowledge and a passionate interest in art and its history. So it is a treat to to sit with you for 25 minutes and just listen. So I'm basically going to say say nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So start off by giving us a brief history on the Masters exhibit and how it all came about. Yeah, so this is the fifth year of the Masters exhibit and it started as 
Um, maybe kind of a crazy idea. I mean, it, I think it did feel a little bit out there. Um, but the idea was, you know, can we bring museum quality pieces right here to Mid-Missouri as a sales gallery? <laughs> like, can we can we sell to collectors here? Can we put on a show that is a museum experience for the people who don't purchase work that is collectible on that level and kind of pull that off all at once? And, you know, they they went out and started meeting art dealers and handlers five years ago. I joined in year three, (laughs) and it's kind of hard to believe it's in the fifth year. But now we really, um, yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, we can can do that in Colombia. We've been pleasantly surprised every time. Um, There really are collectors and supporters here of that caliber, and there are so many art appreciators too. And so we can create a museum experience. Um, We do a lot of educational programming and and kind of some extra, not kind of, uh, a lot of extra research um, because these are art historical figures that we're showcasing and we take pride in sharing the information that we learn. And so we, you know, it doesn't exactly get easier. It's It's an extremely involved project and we make it a little bit new every time that you know the theme or like the historical era will change um so we keep ourselves on our toes but we do uh learn more and more how to trust and appreciate our community and rely on their word of mouth and um in, in that way it gets maybe a little bit easier so that first year was really just a shot in the dark and i remember mm-hmm. that first year and it was a it was a very kind of different show than it is now where now each year you kind of have a particular era or a group of artists or a theme to it mm-hmm. was that first year i mean there was picasso on the wall i mean there would there was just a lot of you know really big famous mm-hmm. named artists yeah. that were there and it was incredible to think we're standing in columbia missouri and really i'm looking at art that i would generally only see if i was in a much larger metropolitan area yeah. but they I remember that first year what was surprising to me was just how are you going to secure this this is just these are mm-hmm. paintings that people would steal from museums mm-hmm. <laughs> it made me nervous for well, everybody we have to change our insurance year. policy for the month <laughs> right. of December every year but yeah. <laughs> that's true so in yeah. um, what what you've had different themes and different eras in parties I think mm-hmm. last year was it female mm-hmm. artists it women of surrealism and abstraction okay and this yeah. year it's American mid-century abstract expressionists so tell uh-huh. us about that group so This show took shape really differently than the other years of the Masters exhibit. In past years, we've chosen five or six names to focus on. And it has just so happened that those groupings have been kind of artists who are in the same era. It works when their stories intertwine. That's kind of interesting. And we've sort of, by accident, a little bit worked our way forward from like the Picasso era and through the World War One era abstraction in Europe and, and then into interwar and now post-war. We can pretend that's on purpose, but it just kind of worked out that way. Maybe maybe we'll continue on that. You're going to run out of time eventually. I, I know. Like we're, <laughs> to go backwards. Yeah, exactly. But this show became about so much, the story became about what happened in New York post-war, like how this movement took shape. And the thing then in execution that became so different from past years is that that took dozens of artists to make the movement happen. And it takes more artists to, you know, execute an exhibit about the movement. And so it really becomes a story of 
ABEX taking shape and changing shape over, you know, the 50s and 60s. And then these artists continue to, to paint after that as well. But there are 24 artists in this exhibit. So that, I mean, that is just categorical, <laughs> categorically different um, right. than talking about five artists. And, you know, then the storytelling is it's the bios of those mm-hmm. five people. I can't do that so much unless somebody wants to walk through with me for about four hours, right. which, you know. I will do it. <laughs> I like it. Um, but it really, uh, it's a, kind of about a big picture and all of the multifaceted manifestations of ABEX. Explain what characterizes this period in the artworks. For people who don't know what abstract expressionism is, why is it called mm-hmm. that and, and how would you recognize a painting of that period? I mean, I think the key word is feeling. And so the expression bit is what changes when the movement takes shape in the U.S. after the abstractionists who are, there are already people working, you know, with abstraction in Europe for a a couple of decades, and we've shown some of them before. Those people end up a lot in New York, you know, fleeing World War II. And these are people like Kandinsky and Rudolf Bauer, Hilary Bay, who was the first director of the Guggenheim, but also an abstract painter. And they did a lot of work to help the world understand that artwork did not need to be a depiction in order to be important. It could kind of stand on its own or be taken in for its own sake. That ha- I feel like that has to happen before abstract expressionism can happen. But And I also feel like these uh, younger artists that we're showing now, or this the next generation kind of has to see that and be exposed to it, which happens only because they're all in New York. That matters. You can't just like, they can't Google each other, you know? <laughs> but this new generation takes the idea that we don't need to depict something, but I think adds the idea that maybe we can actually express a mood or an emotion better with paint than with words. And so it becomes like a new nonverbal language, if that's even not too much an oxymoron. (laughs) Um, But the expression is key. And so the earliest manifestation of that is action painting, where you really, it's like you can see the movement of the artist's arm in the gesture and the brushwork. It's like it took a movement from the shoulder and like a lot of paint flinging. In a lot of cases, it took laying their canvases down on the ground and moving around them. And so there's this sense of movement which really, really helps with their conveyance of a lot of times trauma, violence. They always feel angry. Oh, half of these people served in World War II, you know, and then even we're going into the Cold War after they're back, you know, home. There's kind of a sense of horror, you know, I think that and a need for catharsis, maybe. And yeah, there's I think there's an idea that that maybe that happens in a gestural mark better than in an essay. I think there's a you have a great handout that you give out to people when they they come in the gallery. And uh, I'm trying to find a quote that I had underlined, but just about exactly that it's about putting down an expression rather than putting down a representation Mm -hmm. um, onto the canvas. But it it does. I mean, I know that, you know, you uh, as a viewer, when you're looking at abstract work, you're you're really, it's an emotional response to the painting rather than Mm -hmm. trying to see a pattern in it or understand it. It's like, how do I feel? And I just walk away from a lot of abstract works feeling 
irritated and tense. <laughs> and so I guess it worked, but it, but it, it isn't yeah. a, a feeling that I particularly want. But I think abstract works can present a challenge for a oh, lot definitely. of viewers yeah. in the same way that a lot of new music can leave you searching in vain for familiar patterns. Yeah. There's not a, a time signature that you recognize. And I think abstract works from various art movements mm-hmm. They give that kind of reflexive response of, I just don't get it. It can be so challenging, I think. And I I am already noticing, um, and I and this is true with the contemporary abstract work that we show too, that it seems like it's very natural for most people, children and adults alike, um, to look for pictures. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a very conscious effort. It takes a real intention to decide that you're not going to make your experience of this fully abstract work about what pictures you find there. And sometimes you just do anyway, and that, that actually, the picture's hold feeling for you like if some if you actually feel like you see a figure moving in a really active way then maybe the idea actually still you know sometimes you just have to release you know but I do think it's worth some of the effort to to think like can I stand in front of this and let it wash over me the way that I would experience instrumental music without words nobody telling me what it's about can I let myself just kind of take it in all at once and push back against that really, really strong urge to find a picture? Right. But in instrumental music, even, you have a signature that you recognize. You there's kind of the structure, there's sure. a pattern. And I think for me, it's the, the equivalent of like new music where yeah. a lot of it is as someone explained to me, it's more like a soundscape. Stop looking for music. Mm. Listen for a soundscape. Close your eyes and imagine you're watching a movie and this is a soundtrack. What are you envisioning? Sure. And so I think for abstract art kind of is the same way, except you oh, can't yeah. close your eyes, of course, because you wouldn't see it. <laughs> that doesn't quite work. <laughs> close your verbal brain. <laughs> right. Can you do that? Right. <laughs> and there certainly are, you know, works in the show, uh, the Abstract Expressionist show, which are more color-based. And Definitely. there is a, you mentioned action painting which I think was the maybe the beginning of the movement but mm-hmm. later on there were other phrases that came to be used like color field right. and and then there's hard edge yeah. talk a little bit about those because you have all of those components in the yeah. show yeah it's it really um, it really is a multifaceted show and that became part of the goal was to show how much variety there is under this larger umbrella um, of a relatively brief moment in history there really is there's a lot going on and there's there are different notes with which to connect and it is I do think it's true that not everyone will connect with action painting or not everyone will connect with hard edge and so representing the variety part of what that means is that there's an experience within the that room within the gallery for anybody I hope who comes in I love color field um and this is the easiest I think for me to connect with I guess on some level I just believe in the expressive power of color and actually we I think now it feels softer and more welcoming Mm -hmm. and more pleasant I think happier I we were talking about this I think that the color field painters were more aware of the experience that they were creating for the viewer. I think they this they're sometimes called the second generation abstract expressionists. It happens a little later than action painting and it's like where the action painters are going through their own thing and you get a sense of that. You're sort of just like you happen a to be the observer, you know, <laughs> but it's kind of about their experience. I think by the time Colorfield comes around, these painters are con- really considering what 
the color is going to do for their viewer and creating, I mean, Rothko's is a transcendent experience, you know, um, creating like an environment that you can walk up to and feel like you're walking into. But there's an awareness of the viewer that maybe, maybe that's a little bit of what feels easier to connect. I mean, maybe that's part of the picture of why it can be really pleasant right. <laughs> to connect with. I think that it took going through the step of, you know, paint flinging, action painting for the bigger, like the larger art world to, and for all these artists in the second generation Abex to think about just the expressive power of elemental bits of art, like color and line and shape and texturing. Yeah. And so the color field painters really run with that and trust that there is expressive power in color. And so they're going to use a color to create an environment that gives you a mood or a feeling. And so Vivian Springfield, I think, is one of the artists Springford, who, yeah. Springford, who does the color field. And you have a beautiful work mm. that's kind of towards the back of the gallery, which I happily noticed had a red sold dot on yeah. it. So I'm <laughs> yeah. glad that's staying, hopefully, in Columbia. That was, that's just really a beautiful painting of blossoming colors, almost like an ink drop on a on a tile that spreads out Mm -hmm. and all the colors of the rainbow. I think her work is so exemplary of color field. I really, I I have the best color field experience that I've ever had anywhere um, with Springford's work. That idea that you have got a sort of drop of something on something wet blooming outward, obviously it's static and it's been in that, shape and form since in this case 1972 so it's not like it's the ink is or the acrylic is still bleeding outward (laughs) or something but you get a very different kind of enveloping swelling blooming sense of gentle activity that makes you feel like the color is wrapping around you and that's exactly what the color field painters Mm. want to do is create an environment that feels boundless I think she does it better than any of them incidentally it's been she's blowing up right now she's finally getting her due she's been kind of under recognized and undervalued as a color field painter and like i said i think possibly the best color field painter we had picked out five pieces of hers uh and they sold before they could even come to columbia um we got this piece from a different dealer and it immediately sold and we are working on hopefully i hope before the end of this exhibit we'll see getting uh four or five others of hers i think she's one of the most important artists in the in the show gosh so the person who who bought it now probably got a good deal because it's probably going to be twice as that much is, that the is next person. literally exactly right <laughs> <laughs> this is the moment when her value doubles like it might actually be this week <laughs> yeah yeah. Gosh, well, I, I hope uh, you've managed to get another work in the show. Not that I, I can so. afford it. But, uh, <laughs> so I think art history is a really important area of knowledge. And of course, most of us don't have that. And so which is why when we go to museums around the world or to art shows and we see things like abstract expressionism, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to us because we don't understand it in its context. And there's, so there's always a vanguard of people who do things differently all through art history. And the value of their work lies in the fact that they were the first to do it. But I am really curious about how that coalesces. How do a few painters become a movement? And within a movement, how do a few people rise to the top when they aren't necessarily any better than anybody else? But Mm -hmm. what makes their names stand out Mm -hmm. or shine in lights? That's a really good question. Sometimes it feels like a fluke of history. 
And sometimes it has to do with discrimination, whether it's not subtle or more subtle and kind of harder to put together. You know, when I think about Hilary Bay, um, whose work we've shown in the last couple of Masters exhibits, who, who was one of the painters who invented non-objective painting in Berlin and then came to New York and how you don't, and then was the first director of the Guggenheim, was the reason that Guggenheim created an art collection that became the Guggenheim Foundation, was the person who hired Frank Lloyd Wright to build the, you know, the, the structure in New York, and how you don't read her name in history books. It's like, it's a little bit subtle there because she made the choice not to self-promote at some point. She made the choice to be a director and a curator and to push that part of her career more than her painting, even though she was painting a lot of that the time and making pretty groundbreaking paintings. So it's you don't want to discount her agency at all. She decided to promote Kandinsky and Bauer and Pollock and do and you know to to find and discover these artists that she felt were really important. They all pretty much happened to be men. <laughs> so she you know so she spent this like huge part of her career promoting. So it's you know, I have the inclination to say, well, she was a woman and she didn't she didn't get her due like so many of the women throughout art history that are just completely like left out of textbooks and forgotten. But then when you remember that it's a real person, it's like, well, but, but she had agency, too. And right. she made choices not to self-promote. And that often I think maybe it's a combination of those things. At what point does it become a movement? Like in mm-hmm. in 1947, 8, when the first abstract expressionists were creating their work, a lot of them had either studied with or met uh, mm-hmm. Hans Hoffmann, who kind of was the father oh, yeah. of abstract expressionism, <laughs> who came from, I think, Berlin and um, mm-hmm. moved to the US in 1932. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, he's, he's been there since 1932. This mm-hmm. movement has arisen as a result of catharsis after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. At what point do they say at a party, oh, hi, I'm an abstract expressionist? Like when well, they don't say that. They, they <laughs> when does it become a movement? <laughs> Only historically? Um, so I think, yeah, they're, the, I think the abstract expressionists were probably all, as far as I've read, um, pretty resistant to titles and like titled movements, with the exception possibly of the New York School of Painters. They, so part of what, that you know they're all coming together and and like their timelines coinciding in New York means is that they see each other's work they see Hoffman's work they see now <clears throat> once the Guggenheim or actually the the Museum of Non-Objective Painting would have been the version that they saw um, like I said, Hoffman's in New York in 32, Rebe is in New York in 38, I think. And so there's been uh, like a little bit of a voice established that now once there's the, the early precursor to the Guggenheim, there's work on the wall publicly accessible that they can see. Um, in some cases, if they've studied with or, you know, they may have met um, or learned directly from the previous generation. And so actually see, not everybody could see the abstraction that was already happening. But if you were in New York, then you could. There really weren't publications quite, you know, quite yet, but on the early end of action painting, I mean, there just wasn't a way yeah, to be. Yeah, we forget that. There's no way of I know, seeing it's it. so easy to forget. <laughs> There's no so, television. No. And so if you are in New York and you're a painter, this is what you're seeing, but you are in the group, <clears throat> you know, the only Right. group seeing those And you things. may not have seen what was happening in Europe 
pre right. or during the First World War. So right. you've missed like, Bauhaus and you've missed Cubism and maybe you've maybe mm-hmm. you've heard about surrealism, but I mean you're not mm-hmm. seeing it on TV or in books or on the walls of the galleries in your city, and right. so it feels brand new. It does, and then galleries they just start to really it starts to kind of be a thing, you know, in the mid '30s, and then by the time these artists are you know post-war in New York, there are enough galleries that there's exposure there, and so and also Hans Hoffman has an art school, so that's right. big, right? <laughs> you know, so he's actually sharing his ideas, which are important to over half of the artists in the exhibit that we have, and so it does have to do in a way with like mentorship and uh, you know taking what you learn from the previous gener- you know cultural generation and adapting it to fit your voice in your era which each of these people has a really individual and distinctive voice that's important to every single one of them and so right. I think I write in the statement for the show ironically what th- the choir the chorus of voices what they actually have in common is the need for individual expression. Right. Um, so they're, they're like a choir all singing different songs <laughs> a little bit, but they are, but they're in the same place at the same time. And there's something about that. So historically, so we've we've given them an envelope that they all sit in as mm-hmm. abstract expressionists. There is a tangential link back to Missouri as the abstract expressionists created art in reaction against people like Thomas Hart Benton and the School right. of Regionalism and that sense of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of Benton's students was. Jackson Pollock, right. probably the most prominent of that um, second generation era of abstract expressionists. Mm-hmm. And I think back to the question of why some painters are more famous than others, you know, I think everybody knows they've heard of Pollock and de Kooning, but maybe they haven't heard of Robert Nat King or Fred Troller. Right. But we can maybe thank the CIA. Yeah, that's what this was an article we shared the other day that was that it was immensely I th- actually maybe I shared it because you shared it. <laughs> I think I saw it. No, I got it off um, your website off your Facebook page. Okay. I mean yeah, it's really interesting. But by the by the historic moment of the you know, going into the Cold War, there's an idea that the American voice that is so much about individualism and freedom really there's like literal freedom of expression actually counters like uh, fascist kind of propagandist regimes and art like that there's a way that it embodies actually america and like what it means to be american which is kind of it's so different to think about that now and especially just coming off of like the regionalist era and Thomas Hart Benton like what did it mean to be an American painter for him it's like to show the beauty of the landscape and the heroism of the everyday you know figure and this is very this is a very very different way to be a good American to Mm -hmm. be you know to be flinging paint and, and actually kind of negating art history up to that point but there is a there is a CIA collection of this type of art right. and an idea that it's it's uh, like a counter fascist well and communist too um, mm-hmm. I think in the article it said you know their anarchic net artwork the expressionists mm-hmm. was seen as evidence of the extraordinary scope of freedom of expression in the United States led by front organizations like the Congress for Cultural Freedom these <laughs> efforts were part of the CIA's Cold War strategy of promoting the non-communist 
left. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to show to people like, you know, you're lucky to live in America and be an American because if you lived under a communist regime, you couldn't paint this kind of thing. Yeah, you'd so be see how great we are. Propagandist art, or you'd be kicked right. out. <laughs> right. And interesting, of course, uh, Benton produced a whole series of propagandist art, which mm-hmm. is down at the State Historical Society. Right. His um, his war images were initially requested by the government, but then they decided that it gave too much message it showed the horror of war at a time when they wanted Americans to get behind the concept of you know let's get in this war and and beat those (laughs) (laughs) bad people so it's kind of interesting that then you know a few years later after uh, Benton was supposedly the hero of um, Mm -hmm. the government then they switched to this abstract Mm -hmm. expressionist movement again to further their own aims needs yeah (laughs) it's it's kind of hard to imagine honestly now that that worked but yeah I mean, I just think for the artists, and many of whom didn't know that they were being collected by the CIA, by the way, but they may not right. have felt <laughs> great that comfortable. That. Yeah. Um, but I, for these artists, that kind of rosiness, the nostalgia, the idea that everything is great, um, it just doesn't cut it anymore when they've been in the war, when they've been thinking about the reality of World War II and, you know, what it meant. Um, for the rest of the world, it's just it's just not cutting it for them as intellectuals um, to paint nostalgically. So, Hannah, there is just so much ground to cover in the show. Um, you are giving a talk tomorrow morning. It is Slow Art Saturday at yeah. Sega Browdis from 11 till 2. Mm-hmm. There is, I believe, um, Irish coffee. Yes. Um, on For free, if you come and listen. Yeah. And then you're going to uh, give a curator's talk. Yeah, this is the only public guided tour. Um, we definitely do class tours, and so people are welcome to contact me if you have, you know, if we do the after-school arts groups, you know, a lot of the, the classes come, um, and I'll do walkthroughs with students or with individuals too and so the exhibit's open through the 29th and we can walk through like we've been steeped in this and we're happy to talk about it so we can do that anytime but this will be my only public guided tour really going through um, the exhibit and doing Q&A um, I start that at 11 30 after everybody's gotten in the door and gotten a coffee with Irish cream and kind <laughs> of had a chance to look around and then it, the event continues, the Slow Art Saturday continues until 2, which really is just, you know, have a complimentary, you know, coffee with Irish cream in this case. Um, and just sit and in front of a painting. Spend a little more and time. see what yeah. happens. And, and ask if you have questions. We're there to help. Um, but the idea of Slow Art Saturday is, a, is really about allowing yourself to see what you can take in when you spend a few more minutes than usual um, in front of the artwork, like on your own, just based on your own taste and perception, you know, what do you gain when you spend a little more time in front of a piece of artwork? I love the opportunity to learn, though. It makes so much more sense when somebody is able to explain a little bit more about the background or what you're looking mm-hmm. for in a painting, that, you know, this hard edge is really important in this painting, or mm-hmm. you see the uh, the gestural expression of the artist in other paintings. So I think that's a, a great chance to listen to you talk more in depth about individual pieces in the show. Mm-hmm. And also you have another event the following Saturday on the 18th, which is the 
works on paper. In the fi- 15th, I think, 15th. is Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm excited about this. It's the first time we've been able to do it. We were able to bring works on paper. These are original paintings that are unframed um, that came out of the artist's studios from four of the artists that are in the exhibit. And the reason we were able to do that is because we're working with the dealers who own the full estate of those artists. And so what will happen is they'll, the dealer will purchase the entire estate. And in one case, Jack Roth's whole estate is like all of his portfolio is contained in an onion barn in upstate New York. And it goes to, you know, and there are just thousands and thousands of pieces. And so we were the first looking at them. And this is the first time showing them publicly. We'll pull them out on tables, kind of like an estate sale, and people will get to see them. Um, and it says they're there. accessibly priced. They are, yeah. They begin what? at, so I mean, that depends on your, your <laughs> right. opinion, I guess. But I mean, considering that the price range of the works on the wall is like 25000 to 230000 you know, the master's exhibit is not normally like a purchasing exhibit mm-hmm. for most people. But the works on paper start at, I believe, like $860, you know, under $1,000. Some really large, beautiful, frameable works go up to 9000 But that, yeah, that's it's a little piece of history that's actually a, a little bit more but Sadly, available. there are no Vivian Springford works on the paper that we can I grab wish. and... <laughs> <laughs> The show opens tonight during First Friday. And then, as Hannah said, tomorrow morning, you can listen to a curator's talk at Morning with the Masters, Slow Art Saturday from 11 till 2. And Hannah's talk will start at 11.30. Thank you so much, Hannah, for coming in and talking a little bit more. I mean, really, we could do about two hours on the Masters easily (laughs) and still not get through everybody. That's that's true. That's the challenge. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. And the show is up through December the 29th. So you have plenty of chance to go and see it. The show is called Mid-Century Abstraction, The American Vanguard. It opens tonight at Sega Browdis and runs through the 29th of December. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts and we will end this week's show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. So First Friday has rolled around once again and there are lots of places to drop into if you are out and about downtown this evening. Living Windows will be on display throughout the district this evening from 6 to 8pm with 47 different stores and businesses taking part in the evening's activities. You'll be able to pick up a map of other participating venues at any of the places with living windows displays tonight. At Sega Browdis Gallery, as we just heard, from 6 till 9, you can check out the opening for their annual Masters exhibit this year, featuring a curated selection of abstract masterpieces from the 20th century. At Serial Box at 207 Hit Street, you can see a Mizzou graduate student art show called Double Booked, and that's from 5 to 8. The art of Tavia Sanza will be on display at Resident Arts, and whilst you are in that vicinity, be sure to also visit the Catacomb Artists beneath Artlandish Gallery. At All Street Studios, there is a new show in the main gallery by painter Jennifer Wicks. Plus, do check out their Mother Nature Living Windows display with the one and only Anastasia Pottinger. At the Balsamo Warehouse on All Street, you can attend the launch for Jason Cook's Love Mountains and Surrealist Breakfast. I had to read that a few times, but I think that's what it's called. That opening is from 6 to 9, and if you drop into Range Free, they have a free hot chocolate bar this evening. You can round off your evening at the Blue Note with a Christmas brew and view of the movie Elf. That show starts at 8.30 and tickets are $5. At Talking Horse Theatre tonight, it's opening night for the comedy Clever Little Lies. That starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a 2pm matinee on Sunday. At the Stevens College Playhouse, you can see Leader of the Pack through the weekend. 
The show starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a 2pm matinee on Sunday. At Columbia Entertainment Company, it's opening weekend for It's a Wonderful Life radio play. That show starts at 7.30 and also continues next weekend. Tickets are $14. Odyssey Chamber Music will have its Winter Fantasy Concert at First Baptist Church at 7 tonight. And in Jefferson City, Capital City Productions open their show Christmas My Way, a Frank Sinatra holiday bash. Their doors open at 6 for the Dinner Theatre event and tickets are $38 and that includes dinner. Tomorrow Saturday. It is Slow Art Saturday at the Sega Browders Gallery. Join gallery director Hannah Reeves for a guided tour of the Mid-Century Abstraction Show and her talk starts at 11.30. Missouri Contemporary Ballet will have its Danceability Winter Showcase, the Polar Express, at Windsor Auditorium at 6pm. Tickets are $5. And tomorrow night, the Columbia Civic Orchestra with conductor Stefan Freund will have its winter concert at First Baptist Church at 7.30 and that's a free concert there's no cost to attend on Sunday afternoon and evening the We Always Swing Jazz Series has the next in its season of events when the Joe Locke Trio performs at Murray's at both 3.30 and 7 check ticket availability with the Jazz Series Tuesday night at Stevens College's Senior Hall you can hear Woman a class act showcase featuring Broadway musical hits their show starts at 7.30 and it's free to attend on Wednesday evening the ultimate Christmas show is at the Missouri Theatre when the reduced Shakespeare Company comes to town and takes an irreverent yet heartwarming trip through the holidays. Presented by the University Concert Series, the show starts at 7 and tickets cost from $28. Next Thursday is the opening night for A Christmas Carol. And that's at the Arrow Rock Lyceum Theatre. There will be 13 performances in all running between December the 12th to the 23rd, including matinees on Saturdays and Sundays, as well as some weekdays and tickets cost from $17. And at the Blue Note, Tab Benoit is in concert next Thursday. That show starts at 9pm and tickets are 23. You've been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.